Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. Yes, those summits are in part about the, in great part, about the great power relationship. But in a world where we're facing as much risk as we are, it is really important that other powers engage also with each other and with the great powers. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. You are on Australian Politics, and you are with Catherine Murphy, the host. And uh, delightfully, I'm with the Foreign Minister. Yes, the Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, and I really wanted to grab Penny uh, and wrangle her into the pod cave this weekend because I am just back from, oh God, was it nine or ten days? I can't remember with um, Anthony Albanese as we uh, sprinted through summit season in our region. And it was a fascinating trip. I knew it would be good, uh, but it exceeded my expectations for Mm. interest level. And funnily enough, the the woman who would have done enormous amounts to set up that whole sortie was absent on the trip. We didn't see you, Penny. No, well, uh, I was doing other stuff, wasn't I? Yes, yes. you so, were. No, and mm. we, you know, it's sort of allocation of well, resources, yeah. and I figured he he was fine. Indeed, yeah, uh, and he did he did really well. So yes, yeah. uh, it was a very successful trip. Yeah, it was. But anyway, as you are literally in the centre of all of the precursor activities that led up to summit season, I just actually wanted to debrief with you (laughs) and share the debrief with the listeners. So let's start with the event that captured most attention on the trip, which was Anthony Albanese's meeting with uh, Xi Jinping for uh, the first contact at that leader level uh, since 2016. That's months in the making, that Mm. conversation. Why don't you take us through the steps that led us to that moment? Well, well, first, perhaps the the purpose and the rationale. Yep. um, uh, Which is is this. We we have a a pretty complex and challenging relationship with China. Uh, We have uh, a lot of differences we need to deal with. Uh, we also have issues in this world which China has to be a part of the solution to. Climate change is an example. So I suppose we start from the basic principle that there is a benefit to engagement. And as the Prime Minister said, our objective was to, one, be able to engage, two, and to have dialogue, two, cooperate where we can, disagree where we must engage in the national interest. 
and thirdly, to have a, a relationship where we could manage our differences, which we think we can do if both both parties manage those differences wisely. Mm. Uh, so to get to that point, I think we we made clear before the election there are fundamental policy settings that Australia was not going to shift on. But we also did not think the the utilisation of the China relationship in domestic politics in the way that Mr Morrison increasingly and blatantly did, um, uh, first and foremost in that in many ways was Mr Dutton, uh, we didn't think that was in the national interest. Um, it, didn't, it made a difficult and complex relationship more difficult. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, uh, we had two meetings, I had two meetings with Foreign Minister Wang Yi and a telephone call. Uh, and uh, obviously there's the diplomatic engagement at the officer level. Mm. Uh, and I was pleased that the, the meeting occurred. Obviously there's still many things we, we need to work through, but I think talking is better than not talking. And it's sort of very interesting from my vantage point at the summits mm. uh, that uh, the Chinese leadership had a number of meetings over the course of those events, certainly in G20 and APEC. And it sort of looked from my vantage point as if China had made a calculation uh, about how it might re-engage after a period of very rancorous relationships, uh, major power conflict, all that sort of stuff, right? I know you'll say to me I'm not a commentator, um, but I'm, I'm genuinely interested in your insight. What do you, am I right in in that general sense that there appeared to be a moment where China was looking to re-engage to a degree? And if that's correct, what is informing their thinking, uh, well, you're right, you know, it's not generally good for foreign ministers to become commentators and I probably uh, am unlikely to be drawn on that, but uh, I can answer that this way. Uh, China, like uh, I think most or if not all countries, acts in what it sees its interests are. Uh, China uh, clearly uh, did engage with quite uh, a number of countries in the multilateral meetings you were at. Yep. It's true that, um, you know, it's one of the first, well, I think the first face-to-face -face meeting post-COVID, so obviously it was the opportunity, uh, but there's no doubt there was a lot more diplomatic engagement mm. uh, by President Xi and the Chinese delegation than previously. Mm. Uh, and uh, certainly, I, you know, I think Australians uh, have... Uh, seen a, a change in tone in the relationship on both sides. Mm. So the language certainly we use from the government differs from the you know, drums of war uh, and uh, some of the language from, for example, the ambassador here, but also from Minister Wang Yi after the meetings um, also uh, was you know, a more engaged tone. Have, having said that, there are obviously issues we don't agree on and, and we've seen... You know, some of those don't change. Mm. Obviously, you know, things like AUKUS, Xinjiang, uh, we, are, we are going to have those public disagreements. Uh, but there has been a, a change in the, the way in which China is engaged. But do you think it's about 
I think it's an, about a, a, an assessment of what their where their interests yeah, lie. Yeah, where their interests lie. Yeah, which is what which which is what all states do. Sure. Oh yes, of course. It's not unique to China to actually make a national interest calculation, but I'm just sort of fascinated because obviously there's a number of bilateral relationships and a, a number of bilateral calls that the Chinese government would make in terms of reengagement. Mm. But the focus in those summits, obviously, is this orbit, you know, between. Or, or sort of, I, I think I described it in a piece that I wrote about it, it, it sort of Joe Biden and, and the president of China easing around one another in this sort of, you know, fulcrum of great power competition with the rest of the world looking on, right? And through the sort of prism of those summits, obviously there was a lot of focus on Russia and Russia's aggression in Ukraine and through the sort of eyes of the Europeans and other nations sort of China's relevance in that is using leverage in terms of its special relationship with Russia, right? But there's also a G20 that looks into our region as well, where people fear China is our Russia, right? So there's all these kind of really interesting nuances in all of that. Long preamble. But in terms of, like, there's there's a question here, Penny, I promise. Um, <laughs> it's You said a minute ago it, it's sort of, um, you know, from our perspective, to some degree, it's learning to disagree better or words. You had different words. Yeah, but. I read that in your column, actually. I thought, I mean, I, I say disagree. Uh, we can manage, we can grow our bilateral relationship consistent with our na- national interests if we if we manage our differences wisely, if we navigate yeah. our differences wisely. I think you said if we disagree well, which is a more sort of, um, it was probably a pithier way of doing it and maybe less diplomatic speak, but they're the same concept, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, it's a concept that says we know we are different um, types of nations, yep. different political systems, different values, different interests, uh, but we also know we're part of the same region uh, and so we we are working to find a way to ensure we can navigate our differences wisely. Mm. Um, but I, can I just come back to your preamble because it's quite an interesting image, isn't it, or conceptual image. Yes, those summits are in part about the, in great part, about the great power relationship. But in a world where we're facing as much risk as we are, yeah. it is really important that other powers yes. engage also with each other and with the great powers. Uh, so I see the value in those summits not just uh, as a forum where other countries can engage with the great powers. Mm. But it's also about that web of relationships, which is the multilateral system, the plurilateral system, yeah. to try and uh, generate the equilibrium yeah. that stability requires. Yeah. An observation that Joe Biden made after his first face-to-face meeting uh, with the Chinese president of, of his presidency, he told journalists afterwards that strategic competition was baked in. There was going to be no diminution of of competition between China and the US. What he was seeking in sort of normalising or stabilising the relationship was a clear communications channel to avoid catastrophic miscalculation. And if we sort of cut through the translation of what that means, the president said he wanted to be able to pick up the phone to the Chinese president and stop a war. Correct. Like, <laughs> but that is—I mean—that that is important. 
Oh, it did. But it's also not the, I mean, we all have an interest in averting conflict. We all have an interest in competition not escalating into, or escalating into conflict and for there not to be miscalculations um, or misjudgments. And miscalculations can be both, you know, practical but also strategic miscalculations. Yeah. You know, one of the things I said to the General Assembly is, you know, we, we, we as middle powers and smaller nations, we can't be uh, observers. We can't be passive observers of what the great powers do and hope that they will keep us safe. We want to uh, really... Uh, uh, encourage, urge the great powers to have those lines of communication, have that engagement, have a, a, a stable relationships. Uh, and we also want to uh, work together to try and build um, uh, you know, a more stable stable um, regional system. Yes, but do you, it was sort of interesting to hear <clears throat> Biden sort of reduce his objective to something that narrow, whereas I think Australia's kind of interests are broader than That's that right. for the reasons you are Because we are a middle power. And so our, our, we have to uh, augment or uh, enhance our power by engaging with others. Uh, and one of the things I've uh, what we're really seeking to do is to, for example, work with Southeast Asia, not to ask them to pick sides, not to ask them to be part of a strategic competition um, in in a in a polarised sense, but to work together with us on what is it that we can do to preserve uh, the region and the regional order we want. Mm a stable, prosperous, peaceful region in which sovereignty is respected. And there are attributes of that region which matter to us all, regardless of where we might sit, you know, if whether a country's non-aligned or a US ally. We actually all do care about trade trading arrangements which are predictable. Mm. We do care about uh, international law of the sea, which enables predict not only predictability and stability, but it makes sure that larger powers don't simply... Um, uh, get to do what they want yeah, regardless of the right. interests of the of small right. powers. And that's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, the multilateral system fundamentally and international law and norms fundamentally are about saying we cannot allow might to be right uh, without any con conditions or constraints. Mm. It's about constraining the power of great powers. And great yeah. powers are always great powers, but we have an interest in rules and norms. Yes, and, and in those relationships, webs of relationships. But it's sort of interesting because Australia is perceived often in the region and in Southeast Asia as a proxy of America, right? Like that's that is a perception. I, I don't I don't know that that's that is a perception. And I think we should be pushing that very strongly on a narrative which strips us of our sovereignty. We are a US ally and you know that choice has been made. But we, we, we are part of the region and we um, engage with the region as Australia. Like we have our national interests and, we, and our values and we press them. Yeah. And of course we work with the Americans, as we should, because the America is, remains indispensable to the sort of balance in the region that we need. Mm. But it's sort of at one level I could see the differences more clearly between our strategic interests and the US's strategic interests in those forums. I could see it more clearly than I could actually see it at home. But also I can see the difficulties, though, of navigating that 
old baggage of proxy of the US in the region, particularly with AUKUS. A number of, you know, obviously Indonesia's not happy about that. Malaysia's not happy about that. The Philippines is not happy well, about that. Well, <clears throat> what I say to them is this. One, uh, uh, it is unsurprising that we would want to, Australia would want to replace an existing capability. Two, uh, we are not the, the country... We are not a country that is engaging in an arms race. Three, we always contribute uh, to peace and stability in the region. That's that's what we want to do. Uh, and four, the conflation of nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed is irresponsible. I mean, we, you know, we, we have no Australian government has any intention of, of acquiring a nuclear weapon. And so I think that's just a misinformation. In terms of the reset with China, I mean, we've obviously... You know, you and I have sort of stepped through in this conversation the capacity to disagree uh, more productively, you know, whatever construction, your diplomatic one, my journalistic one, right? Um, so so there's there's that. But I'm obviously we have a couple of uh, Australian citizens in detention in China still. Oh. Uh, you know, is, is this reset predicated on China letting, I mean, sorry, I wanted to express this more in a more erudite fashion than let our people go, but fundamentally, like, where, what are the preconditions, if any? Look, um, I've consistently raised the issue of um, Dr Young and Cheng Lei and as well as continuing to assert our position in relation to those um, you know, death penalty cases, consular cases. Um, I don't use the word reset because I think it implies that we are changing position on mm. certain key um, fundamental... Do you? Yeah, I think... I, so I use... You can use it. I don't mind if you use it. It's up to you. But I use the word stabilise deliberately because a, a reset to me suggests that Australia is sort of shifting from some of the positions we've shifted. And we're not. We're not shifting on national security settings, our national interests, those issues. But we are much more willing to engage and have a dialogue. Um, and I think both parties went into these discussions, you know, uh, looking to try and stabilise the relationship, recognising that there are things we we both will want to say to each other. Mm. And one of the things we want to say to each other from, from Australia's perspective is is to advocate on behalf of Dr Young and, and Ms Cheng Lei. Are you hopeful that the advocacy will... Yield a breakthrough. Uh, I, I don't think someone in my position can speculate about that. Um, but uh, what I can say is I will keep advocating. I'll keep saying what I am saying publicly and privately. And speaking of letting our people go, uh, the other key development mm. during summit season was in Myanmar uh, and the release of the uh, academic economist Sean mm. Turnell, which was a um, Quite amazing moment, actually, to be there in Bangkok when mm. that happened. It was a pretty amazing moment to get the advice. Well, I can imagine. And, um, well, you you have been. I think that what did the prime minister say? Relentless. I think <laughs> I think he characterised you in relation to this as relentless. Tell us the story of how how we oh. how we got to this point. So one of the things I, I say is, you know, you, we, we take the world as it is and we seek to shape it for the better. Uh, and there's different ways in which you try to do that, aren't there? Uh, and 
with Myanmar and Sean Turnell. I said consistently he's our first priority. We were very grateful to a whole range of Southeast Asian nations who were prepared to advocate with the regime on our behalf. Uh, and I particularly mentioned publicly Brunei and Cambodia. Cambodia was obviously chair of ASEAN when we came to office, so unsurprisingly uh, made representations uh, in that um, position on behalf of, uh, to the regime for Mr Turnell, Professor Turnell. Um, I, I did make the decision, I think it was in about September, uh, that I would seek to engage directly with the military regime, mm-hmm. which I did. And, you know, I was really, I was really pleased that he, <laughs> that he was out. Well, it was sort of quite a difficult situation for you to navigate because there were a lot of credible voices out Ooh. saying need to apply sanctions, need to yeah. juice up the pressure, etc. What was your own assessment during all of that? What, what my assessment was what I then did. Like we, we had made, made Mr. Ter- you know, Sean the a priority in every ASEAN engagement. Obviously, I've been to a lot of ASEAN nations since mm-hmm. we were we were elected, and and also met a lot of people at the East Asia Summit and the G20 and so forth in the lead up meetings mm-hmm. to the one you, ones you've been to. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, we, we've consistently raised him with ASEAN partners, and as I said, I, I'm really grateful to. Um, ASEAN nations and others who advocated on um, his behalf. Um, I mean, you, it, when you hold this office, and it's an office, right, that's, it's not you personally, you have to try and make the best judgments you can about um, advice. And one of the things I promised myself um, was that I would really try to do that without, you know, responding in a knee-jerk way to domestic mm. political pressure. Mm. But it, it's also... Um I mean, what's it like engaging directly with the military junta in Myanmar? Well, how does one even do that? Yeah, I'm not sure I want to go in. Well, um, you you you, um, you make a call, uh, or you get a call eventually. But look, Gareth engaged with the Khmer Rouge in order to help Cambodia find a way, a path out of war. Mm. So. Engagement isn't always the only answer, um, but it's usually the case that the answer is, I think the answer is rarely found without engagement. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And you've mentioned, obviously, the advocacy from ASEAN Mm -hmm. uh, countries, Cambodia, etc. ASEAN's often criticised for lacking strategic leadership, for divisions in the membership, for having not a coherent position on things and going into the summit, going into, as we flew into Phnom Penh, it was, that was the drumbeat of analysis was Myanmar's a big problem, ASEAN is incapable of facing up to it, incapable of doing anything constructive, you know, apart from the sort of theatrics of an empty chair in a meeting. But it was really interesting, actually, to sort of see, certainly from Australia's perspective, that that sort of pressure, that sense of isolation with the regime, I mean, look, I don't pretend to know how the military junta in Myanmar uh, thinks about things, but it was interesting that that pressure seem to have an effect. Is that 
a superficial judgment no, that I've I made? Think, or? I think pressure. I think that's that's right. And people often, there's a lot of commentators uh, who uh, write a lot about why ASEAN you know, can do better. ASEAN's been around a long time uh, and uh, it, it is re- you know, geographically the centre of our region. It is the centre of the regional architecture and yeah, it has a long history as um, as an entity, but also the the region itself has a long history of managing great power competition. Mm. So I think people who are highly critical of ASEAN should be, um, you know, perhaps a little more respectful of ASEAN's history and ASEAN's place. I, I think ASEAN centra- I see ASEAN centrality as deeply important to Australia because the the sort of st- stable Uh, region we want, a region that is both stable and respectful of sovereignty and prosperous, um, I think requires ASEAN at its centre. That doesn't mean there aren't others who are engaged in the region. Um, uh, Obviously, you know, the Quad countries and and particularly the US and China's um, part of the region, but, you know, it is is, ASEAN centrality matters to us. Mm. You've you've had this, you know, returning to the soft power offensive in the region. You've posed this question from the first trip that I was on with mm. you, which was the... What sort of region do we want? Yeah. yeah. What sort of region do we want? Um, if you've not followed uh, uh, the... You see, this is the danger of saying something to Catherine Murphy. She remembers the words you use. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, they came up in a, you came up one of your pieces. I thought, oh, she did. She listened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a listener. I'm a listener. I'm paid to listen. But I'll, I'll just give listeners a quick background because obviously you weren't in a conversation that Penny and I had <laughs> when we were uh, travelling, uh, I, I can't remember whether to or, or from Jakarta, which was an early visit. The Prime Minister made an early bilateral visit. Uh, Penny was earlier in her uh, foreign ministry but uh, was articulating a question in the region, which is what sort of region do we want, which was about establishing this point of commonality and agency. Hmm among uh, smaller powers in the region. So you've been asking the question for months now, what sort of region do we want? You've been asking this all around the place, Pacific, Southeast Asia. What's the answer? Mm. I like the way you actually, your words were better there, commonality and agency. I talk about that as a way of building alignment, which is probably a more structural way of thinking about <laughs> well, it. Is. Well, look, I'm a journo and you're the foreign minister. And it's like, I'm sort of contemplating your language. language. Uh, look, I, I think... Uh, ASEAN nations have said very clearly they don't want to choose. In other words, they, they don't want to have to take sides. Um, uh, you know, and different nations, different nation states obviously have different articulations of their interest. Do I think at the broadest level there is a view that we want a region that's stable, that's prosperous uh, and that is respectful of sovereignty? Yes, I think we do. And I think uh, countries across the region uh, would say they want the same, those same things. Uh, what people think is required for that will obviously differ at times. There'll be alignment at times, but it provides a basis for a discussion. Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, partners in the region have sort of met you at the level, at the level you're posing the question? I I hope so. I think I think there there is a lot more sophistication and history 
in the navigation navigation of great power competition in Southeast Asia mm. than sometimes you know, external commentators uh, recognise. Yeah, that's you know, true. And it's, if you look historically, it's not new for this region. No. Um, I was going to make one point mm. actually in yeah. terms of the being able to engage, to pose that question, to have a good dialogue, and I've been really um, – it's a real privilege to have some of that that discussion with people from different perspectives and different cultural and national um, backgrounds. The point you made before about how we're seen in the region, part of why I talk about the diversity of the Australian people uh, and how many of us have, um, you know, born overseas or were the, are the child of someone born overseas, mm. as well as our First Nations um, heritage, is not just because I believe it philosophically, mm. but I think it is an exercise in national power to remind people of the of the fullness of who we are. Mm. So we are not just, uh, you know, a post-colonial, uh, primarily um, white outpost. You know, yeah. We are a multicultural society that shares common ground with so many of you because of who we are. And I think we, we speak from a much, a place of greater strength in the region or greater closeness to the region. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny you say that because I did... I did witness that myself during that trip when we went to that university campus in um, mm. in Makassar. And you spoke about the yeah, mm. and the prime minister spoke about the the history of the trade mm-hmm. uh, in the north of Australia. And it was sort of it was fascinating watching those young mm. students listening to that, engaging with that mm. new thought for some of them. It's very interesting when you can get out of the office and look at those mm. things on or, the ground. Or, or when I did uh, my speech in Malaysia about my grandmother yeah, and I talked about that, like it was really, and it's not so much about me personally, but it's it's that story is a way of explicating the point I'm making mm. and, you know, it was how people received it. And you're right, it's sort of thinking about who we are. Yeah, well, and th- that's really, I think, the reason I'm asking you the question because in a way, because of your own heritage, you are the best carrier of that message. <laughs> and so I'm interested if... No, I'm, I'm genuinely interested I don't know whether... If that's, look, uh, it gives me a particular voice, but, I mean, I thought that the PM's speech at Makassar was, was, you know, he's a kid from Marrickville, but he spoke about the Olnu people, yep, look, and it was course, it was incredibly powerful, the power minister of the country talking about this part of our history. No, and yeah. it was. I, I, yeah. I saw it. Mm. It was. Mm. But uh, but I just think there is, yeah, there, there's, an, there's an addition with you which, is, which I find interesting and I'm interested in the resonances of that. And I've been anyway. in practice. I get to practice my Bahasa, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> there was that too. Okay, just quickly, just one about Iran because I read yeah. in in my own uh, publication today. We're speaking just for clarity on Thursday evening uh, that we have an Australian citizen now, uh, another one detained after escalating uh, protests in that country. That's a terrifying thought to me. Uh, what are we doing about it? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not in a position to comment on the the. The specifics of that, um, but I can say to you a few things. Um, I think we've all been, we people, all of us around the world and here in Australia were not only shocked and distressed by the death of Masa Amini, also known as Jinnah, but the crackdown that the regime, the violent and brutal crackdown the regime has engaged in, 
since that time against uh, women and girls and men who have uh, engaged in protest uh, has been uh, shocking. Mm. Yeah, there have been a series of things we've said publicly and we've done at the UN most recently, so today's Thursday, we're, we're co-sponsoring a resolution at the Human Rights Council to support a fact-finding mission um, in relation to the crackdown. Why do we do that? Uh, because if we, you know, to put pressure on um, um, a government or a regime uh, around its behaviour is one of the ways we can seek accountability. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, Iran is, um, what's occurring in Iran has been distressing, I think, for uh, many women particularly, but people around the world, but it has been brutal. Mm. And is is sanctions an option? Um, also, I didn't ask you in relation to Myanmar, I referenced the calls mm -hmm, yeah. for sanctions, right, obviously before the release of Sean Turnell, but uh, obviously does Sean Turnell's release clear the way for a, a more muscular position uh, in terms of the military regime? Well, whether, whether, it's, whether it's Iran or, or Myanmar or mm. elsewhere, yeah, I, I'd sort of start from a... a High level set of principles. Okay, we 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 uh, take the world as it is, but we seek to shape it for the better. How do we do that? Uh, you know, in in a world where we can't change it all, mm. um, what can we do? Uh, I think we can use our voice uh, to say things publicly, um, and I think people, individuals, have been doing that as well as the Australian government. Um, we can work with others in UN processes to try and increase the pressure via the multilateral system for regimes to do better. We can uh, support civil society. We can fund humanitarian aid. Um, uh, we can uh, look at uh, visas for, for um, people who are here um, who would be facing... Uh, persecution if they return. You know, there are a whole range of those things. And sanctions is one th another mm. thing we can do. Mm. Um, Will we do it? Well, I, I'm not going to speculate on that. You're not going to announce it on my show? I'm not, I'm not going to speculate on that. But I just made the point, you know, they are one, one aspect. We already actually have um, historical UN sanctions mm. on Iran, yep. um, which are, um, have been in existence for some time. Well, anyway, that sounds like a massive watch this space to me. Um, Penny, thank you for your time. It's flat out. It's like Parliament's in its last Well, we're sitting days. tomorrow. Yes, so. indeed. Yes, and we've got to get her out of here. Thank you to my producers this week. Thank you to you guys for listening. Uh, you know the drill. Get in touch if there's anything that, uh, you know, that grabbed your fancy in this episode or that you're curious about. Uh, we'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.